Network. Connected. MIDI session. Running. MIDI show control. Confirmed. DMX interface. Connected. Light control. Confirmed. Ethernet. Active. Audio interface. Active and engaged. Arduino unit. In range. Bluetooth remote pair. Connected. OSC IP. Active. We're ready. Start the queue. Featuring Andy Dolph, Joshua Langman, Dave Mickey, Alex Sparks, and Mark Neiser. It's the queue. Welcome to the queue, everybody. Today I am flying solo, as the rest of my sheeple are all engaged in their various projects. Uh, and I have a great interview, though, with Jurgen Kienhofer from Aircable, and I hope you enjoy it. Today I have an interview with Jurgen Kienhofer from Wireless Cables Incorporated, based out of San Francisco. Their company is known for its long-range industrial Bluetooth products. Wireless Cables manufactures and sells long-range Bluetooth-based products, or wireless cables, under the brand name Aircable. Products are designed for industrial data communication, as well as for extending range to existing devices such as mice, keyboards, data loggers, machine controllers, etc. The new product category is using the newly certified Bluetooth Low Energy Aircable BLE module for industrial and consumer products. Jürgen has a degree from the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology in Germany. Please welcome... Jürgen Kennefer. Jürgen, welcome to the podcast. I am very excited to talk to you today. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. The company is called Wireless Cables Incorporated. Our products are all called or have under the brand name Aircable. So, uh, and that's also the name of the website, aircable.co, as our main site. And what is the main purpose of, I mean, Aircable makes me think I don't need cables anymore. Is that you guys <laughs> design stuff that gives, lets me eliminate cables from my system? Yeah, that's how we got started. We got started by building cable replacement devices uh, using Bluetooth technology. And still, one of our major products we sell is serial to Bluetooth interfaces. So you take a one device which has a DB9 on one end, which is RS-232, and another one, and there's no cable in between. So thus the name Wireless Cables. And is uh, it typically sending that Bluetooth when you're going using the serial adapters? Yes, uh, Bluetooth is much uh, is a, is a much easier to use wireless technology than when you compare that with Wi-Fi or so. It's very difficult to set up. We have actually introduced this year a serial to Wi-Fi product, but you know it doesn't sell very well because it's so damn difficult to set up. Hmm. Um, Bluetooth is much more much less power hungry, so you can run it on batteries. Our um, serial five. X, which has a battery built in, it's not bigger than the normal, just look like a plug, um, will run for a whole day on the battery. Well, um, when, you're, when you're doing a serial Wi-Fi setup, why is that so complex? Because it has to join the existing network? Is it creating, creating its own network? Yeah, Wi-Fi is a computer network, is a many-to-many -many interface, computer-related. It's a TCP thing. So in order to get a serial port into a Wi-Fi, you have to think about your access point. You have to get into the network. You have to uh, reserve a port on that, um, a socket port, which one side opens it up, then the other side needs to, be, it needs to use that network socket and then you have to convert it back to serial which could be a, an application on your on your computer think unix it's an so cat uh, so it and and requires lots of parameters in order to get something uh, uh, a serial stream going wow. on bluetooth it's much simpler right so you take two of our adapters you put one in master mode and the other in the slave mode and boom you got it hmm. and there's nothing in between 
And are those just those those little widgets I'm seeing here? Yes, the CL5, the Air Cable Mini, and the and the five axe are the, the typical type of serial to Bluetooth interfaces we sell. The other type of product we're very famous for is our long range uh, devices. What is the difference between a serial five X, a five, and a mini? Not much. The only difference is a little bit of hardware around it. The uh, serial five and the five X implement the full RS232. They have voltage generators for the plus minus voltages you use on the RS-232 channel. You, ha you have access to the hardware handshake, the RTS, the CTS. You can have access control over the data terminal ready, the data set ready lines, all this kind of stuff, you know, extra. It implements all power saving mode. So if the other end goes to sleep, you recognize it. You can put a voltage generator to sleep to save some power. The 5X has switches for the board RAID and all that. And the Mini just doesn't. The Mini implements basically just an RS-232 RXTX line and nothing else. Less hardware, much cheaper. The Mini, for example, is that need a separate power supply or is it pulling that off the serial port itself? It does require power on pin 9. This is a typical type of thing for devices that you know don't have cables, right? You need power. Pin 9 on the DB9 connector is usually then used just for power supply. If I'm doing a USB to serial adapter, wouldn't that be automatically supplying pin 9? And not all of them. Some do. We use one that supplies five volt on the DB, on the pin nine. So which just means you plug it in and it's there. There's some cheaper ones. They don't do that. The issues that I've had and the reason I use serial and actually I'm interested in it here is a lot of people are using serial cables for projectors because a lot of our focus on this podcast is about show control and controlling devices in difficult situations or places where running a 200-foot serial cable is not very reasonable. I've had issues with crossover or not crossover cables. Is that something that you can just pick the cable, I guess, you need, depending on if the projector needs a crossover cable or not? Yes. All our products come automatically with a female adapter, a null modem adapter. Crossover, really, is whether you have a null modem or not. Okay. So you would use or wouldn't use that adapter? Is that the idea? The standard says if you have a male-type connector, you know which one is input and output. Right, and if you turn that into female, you have to swap input and output. Right. Otherwise, connecting input to input and output, the output that wouldn't work. That is just such a mystery, though. Unless you've delved, yeah. delved into it enough, no one knows that. I mean, I, I, I spent hours and hours working on that to figure that out. We just comply to the standard perfectly for all the products we have, and the null modem adapter is a special one we have that routes the pin nine through. Which means if you supply your power on pin 9, none of the null modem adapters you get will root pin 9, but this one does. Hmm. And you get it with, with all serial products. You get it for free. So. so if I bought two air cable minis, then I could have one come out of my Mac through a USB adapter and then the other one plugged into the projector and I shouldn't need a cable between the two. Actually, you only need one. You only need one that plugs into your projector. But you don't need one for a Mac because Mac has Bluetooth built in and Bluetooth wow. implements the serial port profile. So wow. you can use the Mac's built-in Bluetooth in order to make connections to your projector. You wow. don't need the extra one on your Mac. Just one is fine. And get the 5X. It makes more sense because it has a battery built in. You don't have to worry about wires, anything. And it has an extra external antenna, which gives you another 50 meters of range. Wow. And how am I sending the Bluetooth commands out, like through CoolTerm or something like that? It depends. If you have an application that actually speaks your projector's commands, 
-hmm. You can just use that. On the Mac, it looks exactly like a standard serial port. Once you made the connection, you have a serial port, speak Linux, and it's at slash dev slash TTY dot Bluetooth serial number, whatever. Oh, so you're saying that the serial air cable thing you're talking about would show up yes. in my Bluetooth pairing stuff? Absolutely. First, ah. it would show up immediately there. So you pair it, and um, we do implement a security. So it's not this just works kind of security mechanism. Mm -hmm. No, you have to actually have a passkey. Right. And the passkey is, that's the default passkey you can change. And once you type that key in, you have made the pairing. And once the pairing is established, you have your serial port under slash dev slash serial or on cool term or wherever you want it. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. So this would be an easy way to start turning up, powering up and down projectors and get all the and get data back from them uh, to give you feedback about what's going on without having to actually run a cable. Oh, absolutely. And when you have a serial 5-act, the DB9, the pin 9 and DB9, you can use for charging the batteries. There's also a barrel plug on the side, which you get a cable that goes to USB. You can use a, an available USB port to charge it up. Or a power outlet, like a little iPhone charger or so, and you have power hmm. forever. That's amazing. Yeah, Bluetooth has been a game changer for me. Have you noticed the range extenders that you sell are, I mean, if you read the specs on them, it's kind of insane. It says 10 kilometers. I can vouch for that to some degree. I know I've been on my bicycle and I've been controlling my Mac back home. And I know I've gotten at least five kilometers away from the house where it's still kind of... Turning, starting and stopping iTunes, and I can hear that through my cell phone call back to the house. Is that a line of sight, 10 kilometers? Oh, absolutely. 10 kilometers is the maximum we have certified with the FCC. And that is only possible if you do a point-to-point -point connection with directional antennas. Oh, with directional antennas. Yes, you have to have directional antennas. It's not enough. The output power we produce on our long-range radios is absolutely in the spec. It's 20 dBm. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's in the spec. It's not more than that. It's certified to be used all over the world. The, the big thing about our long-range radios is that the input sensitivity of the receivers is better than before. When you compare standard Class 1 Bluetooth devices, which are normally the ones that will produce 20 dBm output power, those devices usually have a less input sensitivity. And that's due to the fact that if you have a very strong transmitter, you have to shield the receiver from that enormous amount of energy that comes out. I mean, there are 100 milliwatts coming out of that thing. Wow. And if you have a receiver that needs to listen to very faint signals that are far away, you know, in the in the order of, you know, 90 or 80, minus 90 dBm or so, then, you know, you have to have a shield in between those. You hmm. just kill these these input input um, transistors. Huh. So and we've managed to do that. So the input side is uh, not just, you know, the standard 80, 90 dBm, minus 90 dBm, but we're also able to improve that by nearly 10 dB. So we are, on our newest radio, newest long-range radio, we are at uh, roughly about a minus 104 dBm input sensitivity. With an output power of 20 dBm, now you get like 125 dBm of, of um, a link budget. Wow. That's why you get the range, right? Wow. And you add an 18 dBi directional antenna on both sides. It adds on the receive side and on the transmit side. Right, that's why you get the t uh, ten kilometers. And yes, do the math; it's doable. It's so strange because outside in a pure place, I can get crazy range. Yet I'm in a theater, and God knows how many cell phones are out there. And 
I'm literally 50 feet away, and I have trouble with my little Bluetooth remote. Absolutely. Interference is the major reason. I mean, there's two things for inside and outside, what you have to consider. For the, in the outside, well, you don't have anything sur- uh, around you. There are no reflections, mm-hmm. which is kind of good, but it's kind of bad too. So you can't get around things on the outside. So if there's a tree in the middle or some bushes and you try to communicate between two devices, it doesn't work, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Water, anything that contains water, is uh, absorbing microwave perfectly, hmm. right? You can pump kilowatts into your coffee without getting through, right? Hmm. It's water. And leaves contain a lot of water. Concrete contains a lot of water. The ground is a lot of water. It's another story. You have to go try to get long range. You have to get up in the air. If there's water, it does absorb it. In the outdoors, you don't have the advantage of getting a second path to your receiver. From bounce. Like, yeah, bounce when he reflects on the on like windows on on walls on something. Mm-hmm. So from that point of view, yes, it's much cleaner. But then you have to have more better line of sight. Mm-hmm. I always tell you know people when they call, they have this issue. So so think about it as a light bulb. The device, you know, for example, the air cable host XR or the serial five X or something. That is your light bulb. Okay, the antenna you put on it is your reflector. Mm. It does not amplify anything. It doesn't do anything. It just directs it. And there are some little antennas and that are that turn this 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 light bulb into just a you know standard 360 degree all over omnidirectional light bulb. Or there are other like direction antennas and then they turn this light bulb you have into a flashlight. Mm-hmm. Right? So you can point it to somewhere and yes of course it's more brighter at that point, but behind you there's nothing. It's gone. That's the effect of a directional antenna. We have another one, which is also an omnidirectional antenna, 360 degree. But it's a very high gain antenna. It's the highest gain, mostly the highest gain you can get. It's a 9 dBi. So 9 dBi, factor of 10. 3 dB is a factor of 2, right? So so it's roughly a factor of 10. So the beam that comes out of a 9 dBi antenna is extremely sharp. It's only 6 degrees. 6-degree beam, and it's all horizontal. Mm-hmm. So the whole signal is compressed like a donut into a all horizontal and no vertical. We call this a lighthouse. So you got a lighthouse. And the, that is, makes this use of this antenna so difficult because if you tilt that lighthouse, it's gone. Huh. Yes, you can get 3 dB to 9 dB at 6 dB, but you only do this on one side. You actually get only a factor of 2 in range. Huh. Any sort of change in pitch to this antenna then would affect its ability to really do its job. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Another thing of going into long range, if you are too close to the ground, you don't get the range. And that's due to the uh, Fresnel zone. The Fresnel zone basically says, you know, the further out the signal goes from the antenna, the thicker it gets. So when it gets thicker... It gets, and you're too close to the ground, it actually gets into the ground, or meaning the ground absorbs. So I've been putting my stupid so, receiver on the ground. That's probably why I'm not picking up in the back of the theater sometimes then. That, that is very bad. Yes, that's extremely bad, putting it close to the ground, especially when the ground is made out of concrete or which it is. dirt or so, right? Which is water, which you already have lost like you know, 80% of the signal just wow. because of the fact that you put it close to the ground. So is cell phones, all the Bluetooth stuff in cell phones, is that really no part of the equation here? 
No, it's just general. It doesn't really matter what frequency it is. It's always the case. In higher frequencies, it's more pronounced than in lower frequencies, of course. But is there an interference component to other people having more Bluetooth cell phones in the space? In theaters, if you have a lot of Wi-Fi and people use Wi-Fi a lot, then you get interference and then you get collisions. Bluetooth and Wi-Fi are on the same frequencies. They use different wide channels, though, but they do collide. And the more you collide, the more the less data you get through. Should I move my router, my wireless router, as far away as possible from the antenna of the Bluetooth? Yes, there is a definitely a, a component on this. I mean, if you're not as close as a, as a foot or two, it's not a big deal. So you don't need to be further away than a foot or two. If you're too close, you get into these the near field issues. Right, but if you are a foot away or more, then it's all fine. It's not an issue. Mm -hmm. But there's still collisions because you're using the same frequency, hmm. right? So that's the issue, and that's the reason why when you are in a big crowd, of people, and or in a stadium, we did some Bluetooth boxing gloves receive with the long range receivers, and so what we found out at one of the matches, there were like uh, 53 access points in that room. Wow. And it's just because people are using their cell phones and, and, and Wi-Fi. Your stuff still functions, though, despite that. But it's dramatically reduced, and we have to focus the signal really to the boxers in the ring with direction antennas, even though they're only like, like 30, 50 feet or so away. It was one of the most difficult environments we've ever worked on, to be honest. So you're fighting for bandwidth, really, at that point. Because once I get to stage and I'm 15 feet from the antenna, I've never lost it. And I'm such an idiot having it on the floor. I, I got something to work on to, yeah, to yeah. tweak put, that up a little up. bit. Six, six feet up and it's just fine. It's perfect. By the way, you can turn the antenna upside down. It's not a problem. So if hmm. you mount it on the ceiling with the antenna pointing downwards, it's absolutely perfect. Huh. Yeah, so the higher you, the higher is okay as well. It's nothing to hit, nothing to get absorbed by. Uh, yes, yes, certainly. I mean, if the if the ceiling is also made out of concrete, stay away from that too. Because the big thing, you know, for us in show control is just reliability. We need to be able to not think about it and have it just do its thing and never have to question, is it going to be ready to do this? I am in a unique situation because I'm coming in from back of house when I start the show. So if I'm in an arena, I'm a thousand feet away from the stage and I'm hoping to hit my go button at that point from my belt, which is a little Bluetooth device, which works 99% of the time. But the one time it doesn't, I have to send somebody out there to hit the space bar on my computer and... So another thing that you guys are getting into, which I'm trying to get my head around, is this mesh idea. And the reason I'm, more, I'm interested in it is I have one sender, say my computer, for example, Bluetooth or of your other options that you have available. And I want to make two balls turn red at the same time. Now, in conventional Bluetooth, it can't really do peer-to-peer. -peer, so the, the first receiver can't send to the other receiver and the, the computer itself can't say to both of them, at the same moment to turn red. Well, the way I get around that is I use serial commands and I have cool term, send one, then send the other to the two. And there's a teeny bit of latency. But this mesh stuff sounds like it might be a possible solution to that. That sounds like a perfect solution for this. The Bluetooth Smart Mesh is something very new. It is right now, the Bluetooth SIG is standardizing that Bluetooth Smart Mesh. And Bluetooth Smart Mesh is, built, is a communication protocol that is built on top of Bluetooth Low Energy. So what we've talked about before was all standard Bluetooth. Standard Bluetooth with serial port profiles, all these, the audio stuff, this is all standard Bluetooth. 
Bluetooth Low Energy came along a few years ago from Nokia. It's a new radio implementation. It's, it has really actually nothing to do with Bluetooth from a radio point of view. It uses totally different way, different channels, different frequency. I mean, it's the same frequency space, but the, the channels are wider. They uh, overlap differently. And so it's, it's a whole different story, actually. The, even over air, it looks different. But anyway, it was adopted by the Bluetooth 6, and Bluetooth has some limitations. And so I wanted to get around this. Mainly, you want to run devices on batteries. And standard Bluetooth was never able, actually, to do this on a coin cell. Because when you transmit and you require energy, the current consumption is so high that a, that a coin cell can't handle it, even though it's only short. So Bluetooth Low Energy gave that promise, not only from the absolute power consumption, but also from the relative power consumption. So meaning you can run a, a sensor device, a temperature sensor or so, on a coin cell for years. And it's mainly done by just staying off the air as, most, as often as you can. So Bluetooth Low Energy, very interesting, very good stuff. There's a few interesting products out there that uses it. Specifically now it crystallizes out that remote controls for TVs and stuff. That's Bluetooth Low Energy. Hmm. That works very well. It's, it's simple to use. Not much. There's no pairing and stuff. Really nice. So your remote will have a battery built in, but it will last you years. It's powerful enough, actually, to process even audio. So you can get audio signals across, and that's the reason why these new remote controls have a microphone. So you press the button, you speak into it. It's compressing the audio, transmits over to the TV, and then the TV processes it, um, maybe through the cloud or directly. That's Blue's Low Energy. We have a few interesting products. Lots of them are test devices. You can talk to your heart rate monitor. That's a Bluetooth Low Energy device, for example, right? Because it runs on a coin cell. Wearable technologies, mostly Bluetooth Low Energy. Any the smartwatches, it's all BLE. Is that where people are using like the BLE board, just the raw board? There's not much standardization. So it's less, less standardization on BLE. So hard rate monitors do have their little standard, but a lot of those companies do something outside of that standard. Meaning, even if you're not connected to your Bluetooth heart rate monitor, your treadmill that's made by the same manufacturer will still be picking up your heart rate. It works exactly the opposite how standard Bluetooth works. So in order to make connections, the receiver actually sends something. So instead, the other way around. So how does the mesh change this for me then? The mesh is a protocol built on top of Bluetooth Low Energy. It uses only three channels, and it's called uh, the advertising channels. BLE was, uh, uses that, for example, if you want to make a connection, the, the, the hard drive monitor, for example, sends an advertising package out on these three channels and saying, I'm available. So go, you have 1.2 milliseconds time to connect to me. And then waits again until it does it again. The Smart Mesh protocol uses those channels for broadcast and sending out information and then listens on these advertising channels for any other devices that send something to them. It's the first time a nice broadcast implementation on top of a medium, in this case BLE, that you can use for communication. How would I go in and uh, grab that information and adjust that? Is there a software package or something? Or how do you get inside it to tweak this stuff? The way you would implement a solution would be that you have a smart mesh node that is listening on smart mesh packages and is transmitting smart mesh packages. For example, in your case, you've got two lights. They want to 
be controlled. So they both just listen on smart mesh packages over air all the time. It's not like it's something that consumes no power. A smart mesh node, when it wants to be controlled, needs to listen. And the more they're on the air, the better it is. So let's stay on the air 100% of the time. Your device who controls it creates a smart mesh packet with all the security and all the addressing. It's everything necessary to do this and sends it out. Both devices, both your lights will hear it and will then react on it. Am I pairing those separately one time as well, just to get them in the game, and then, then they're ready to go? That's a much more difficult story. The Bluetooth Smart Mesh, since it is on a public channel, everybody can listen in, and everybody can talk on that channel, because it's, it's broadcast. So you need to add a whole layer of security to it. You need to define how to address devices, you need to find out who is part of your game and not someone else's. Check if you are part of that group of devices or etc. It's a relatively complex system that is set into this place. And also mainly because the smart mesh is designed to be used in home automation. And home automation, there are some things that you want to do that are maybe not that, need to be extremely secured, like you know, light bulbs or so. But there's other things that you want to have very secure, like your door locks. It implements all that. I see these light switches here, the smart dimmers. Do they have a little board inside there then? Our goal is to build a smart mesh module. Smart mesh module is a device that you can configure. You can make it your own. You can do all this security key exchange. And then you can have either general messages or specific ones that are part of the standard, like a light switch command or a change light intensity command. So it will be a smart mesh module that only speaks smart mesh, and you would use your standard cell phone to configure these devices. We think the best way would be a provisioning device that you got to have. It's something like, okay, this is your keychain. So you make all the devices you buy new, you make them your own, you exchange these keys, you give them a key, so every device has its own key then, and you know the key and nobody else does. Your devices can communicate with each other, but nobody else can. When can I get one of these boards? I'm super excited now. <laughs> the first product we're going to have will be a serial to smart mesh interface. We built this on top of the Air Cable Mini. So the Mini will be available as a smart mesh mini, which is just taking some serial commands and sending them out. But you could send that to multiple yes. receivers at that yes. point. Then. And now you can mm -hmm. do two or three, and they can all listen on the same channel. It's all fine and very simple to do. You have your smartphone app where you provision your devices first. And what's even more and actually quite nice to have, you can actually listen into channels. You can say, okay, I want this channel, and I listen to what's going on on that channel. And you get right. all the bytes. You can tell with the projectors on, if it's off, all that kind of yeah. feedback that you need. So in general, for the serial pipe, it's just bite. What you could do then is to just spend a little time and then make your own, I would say, an application or a model, your projector app. On the screen, you would see that as, okay, this is my projector and has these three or five functions. And you can click each one of those buttons. And on the back end, it will just generate a smart mesh message and sends it to the projector. Another thing I really found interesting is this idea of marketing, pushing advertising to phones. Now, a lot of the people that probably listen to this podcast are in venues and performing arts situations where being able to tell their guests when they come in the door that, there's a new show coming up and the wine is now half off in the lobby. 
is that something that you could see implemented in a theater situation? Bluetooth proximity marketing is around for you know many years and has changed dramatically. The old style of using standard Bluetooth, trying to discover cell phones and try to communicate with them and asking them, do you, do you let me connect to you and stuff? And that was usable like five, ten years ago. That was the time when Nokia's, all the cell phones were discoverable. As long as you had some like a file transfer app running, which most of them actually had for using exchange pictures. So mm -hmm. that was good. That was working. But now it's not. The privacy laws, especially Europe, it's basically made all the cell phones non-discoverable in normal situations. Right. You don't want to be tracked. This type of mechanism doesn't work anymore. Don't invest anything into standard Bluetooth marketing. It's mm -hmm. not working. You could, of course, say, everybody discover me. Yeah, first of all, you wouldn't find anyone. Uh, or, or much less number of devices, and not cell phones. Mostly it's like your headset in the car, <laughs> right. uh, yeah, that kind of thing. But that would right. work. Right. So, so, <laughs> so you won't do anything. It's, uh, I mean, there's still people trying to sell this stuff, it's, but it's not working. Apple never worked. Apple was never discoverable and did not allow anything that's not Apple to connect to it and still doesn't. And that's really an interesting thing. Standard Bluetooth is still completely blocked for anybody else but Apple. I know I'm using an Adafruit app now. Bluetooth Low Energy is completely open. Yes, yes. That's the difference. So, okay. And that was the time when a Apple came out with their iBeacon. It's like, oh, we got a new thing, the iBeacon. We built it into the operating system. So as long as you configure it and say, I'm watching for this particular iBeacon, if it comes into range, bing, your iPhone stops blinging or something. That was very nice, good idea. But the problem is you can only listen to, you know, I think up to 10 iBeacons or so. It has to be a particular number. The whole UUID needs to be given to the operating system. You know, then I got some major and minor number. You can do play a little bit around it. So you could implement, and people did and do still do, uh, iBeacon marketing implementation. They deploy mm -hmm. iBeacons, and you have to put an app on the phone at least to configure to listen to this particular iBeacon. Once you get it, then the app will go to the cloud or a website and resolve that UUID and comes back with a picture or an ad or an whatever you want to you know, distribute. When you do this, the iBeacon itself is, uh, has a particular number. It's not, it's not encrypted. It's all clear text, right? So when you are a McDonald's and you put your things there and people with the iPhone come in and they are oh, uh, get a coupon or so, it can be misused, because it's all clear text. So you as a Burger King could come and say like, oh, what's that iBeacon? And write down the number, because it's all clear text, yeah? And put this into your store. Huh. Right? Oh, so, and then use their iBeacon. Yeah, yeah. So, so you basically just go and place your own beacons in your competitor's <laughs> den. And without them doing anything, they can't do anything about this. It's, I mean, it's pretty impossible to find these tiny little things there, you know, glued under the table or so. Yeah, so it can be misused dramatically. And that's what, where Eddystone comes in. Google has defined the new beacons, Eddystone, with the encrypted ID, the EID, Enfermal ID, which is really just means it's a temporary number. And that can only be resolved by going to back to Google. But the interesting thing about the encrypted version is it changes all the time. 
So every time you get a different one, so you can't copy it, you can't make one and put it into your competitors then and think like, okay, it's advertising your stuff. No, it doesn't. So that makes a lot more sense. So, and this is what we have in, you know, five, 10 years from now, we will have Eddie Stones available. Then your, your browser already has the nearby option. So you can actually switch on your Chrome browser and add nearby to it which basically just listens for Eddie Stones, right? And when it comes up and you look at your phone, you see, like, like in your notification, you say, okay, there's something nearby. And if you want to see this, click here. This is very interesting. So you can do actually anything you want. You can give some information like a coupon, a picture. Mm -hmm. You can send them a URL. You can start an app. Really anything you like. And the data associated with that little encrypted key that's been sent out by these devices right? That back end has all the data associated with that. That's what I think is going to happen. It's less marketing. It's more like information available nearby. What else right, you can see? Right, okay. which sounds better than marketing. Uh, <laughs> definitely does. It's important not to misuse it, I think. Yeah. If that's misused, like the Bluetooth discovery old style, then someone shut it down. Yeah, it has to be in a reasonable way. So it, it's no use if you go uh, through your city and there's 25,000 edit stones available on your screen. So how do you stop that? That doesn't work. Well, I got around all this at a conference in New York. By I brought six uh, Wi-Fi routers with me, and I named them all. The first one's Mark. The second one's Nizer. The third one is 4D Show. The fifth one is Booth 364. And so whenever anyone opened their phones, the little bloop, bloop, it would come up available networks. And oh, I put asterisks in front of every name so that they would be the first five that would come up on the screen. And so I had a free ad basically just tell everyone to come visit my booth. Smart, smart way to do this. Yes. It would be nice to have something like a standardized way. And, and I think Eddie Stone is a pretty good thing to do. So what, what we're thinking at the moment it's really, uh, that's kind of a secret. Um, so uh, combining Eddie Stone with Smart Mesh, I think that makes a lot of sense. And mainly mm -hmm. because Eddie Stone is about encryption. You have to have these keys and stuff, right? On the Smart Mesh, you also have these keys. So you have your network key. So you can use the, the network key and encrypt and use that for Eddie Stone. Using that mechanism combined, you can actually register each node, each smart mesh node, you can register with Google. And everyone who has and sees this can actually go and say, what is this? But they don't get the information other than I, I may know what it is or it may whatever the service gives you back. But you can never decrypt it. Unless you get the permission key, right? Yes, but you can't. You don't. Because I, unless, of course, you're the owner of this device. And Google does not get the whole key. It only gets the key to be able to analyze what the back is. Right? But nothing else. So I think this, there's a lot more things that could come in the future with these type of technologies we're looking at, which are in standardization, which are just now coming out a little bit here and there and hasn't been deployed really yet anywhere. It's very interesting what's coming out, but it makes sense and it, it, it looks really good. Well, I am so excited about getting my hands on a mesh board that I can plop into some balls. And looks like you need a, a, an air cable mini mesh. We do have a number of those now available. So they're still prototypes, but they do actually work. If you have two, that's one way, but you still need an app on the phone to pair them. Right. And the app on the phone right now works on Android with the latest Chrome Dev. 
and you switch on the, spl- the secret Bluetooth switch up there. We'll, we'll have that information on the website. Hmm. For your listeners, if they're interested, I mean, we really like to get some good, interesting applications for this type of technology. And I would be happy to just give a handful of those devices for free for really good good apps cool. to, to for people who want to play around with yeah them. well i'm sure we have we'll have lots of interest in that and thank you so much for joining us cool that was a pleasure and finally i'm going to take us out with a quote tv and the internet are good because they keep stupid people from spending too much time out in public douglas copeland the q is produced by active media group in association with the q show cast Music for The Cue was written and performed by Kyle Swafford. For more information and links to our blog, online tutorials, cast, and videos, please visit theqshow.com. You can contact us at info at theqshow.com. Now go out and make something, and you too can go to 11.